Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. everyone and welcome to the History of England episode 342 Spanish Mismatch and happy St George's Day well yesterday and tinky tonk and down with the dragons. Now Mr Wyatt you might remember had a mysterious visitor to his pub on the 5th of October 1623 in Godalming and I bet you have been worrying and worrying about who he could possibly have been. Well just in case you hadn't guessed he was of course the heir to the King of England and Prince of Wales, Charles Stuart, and friends. Charles, Buckingham and their entourage had landed at Southampton that very morning. It had become increasingly clear that his marriage negotiation was a fusted blush, once Olivares had fessed up after the constant delays and particularly Olivares' jaw-dropping admission that they would never do anything to return the Palatinate to Frederick that involved war. Charles later said that his response to Olivares' bon mot was to say, If you hold yourself to that, there is an end of all, for without this you may not rely on either marriage or friendship. That was me channelling Alec Guinness, by the way. How did I do? So, it would look as though that was that. The fat lady was giving it her all, but the form... Ladies and gentlemen, the form must be adhered to. The diplomatic form that this was the best of all possible worlds populated by the very best of friends. It was agreed that a betrothal would surely take place. Philip and Charles solemnly swore to put all the marriage articles into place and Charles signed a letter committing to the betrothal 
and gave it to Digby to serve on the Spanish court once the final papal dispensation had arrived. By this stage, Buckingham and Olivares had comprehensively fallen out and clearly hated each other's guts. The Spanish would continue to blame Buckingham for the impending failure of the whole thing, for fail it had, just in case you're not clear about that. Funnily enough, before they left, Charles sent a servant back with another letter to give to Digby, telling him not to proceed with the betrothal until he had a written assurance that the Infanta would not sneak off to a nunnery to avoid marrying him. Clearly, Charles had started to pick up vibes from Maria Anna. But the real intention, of course, was to find a way to delay without specifically breaking his stated oath. There was then a final fond farewell with Philip IV, many hugs and kisses and expressions of undying love and amity and the exchange of precious gifts. And then, jumping on the back of their horse, they were off to Santander to catch the ferry in the form of the Royal Naval Ships, and Buckingham's spirits lifted as he wrote to James, My heart and my soul dances for joy, for the change will be no less than to leap from trouble to ease, from sadness to mirth, nay, from hell to heaven. Not a letter you'll find on any Spanish tourist website, obviously. Thence to Southampton, to the pub for a quick snifter with Mr and Mrs Wyatt, and on to London to arrive in a classic early morning English drizzle. The news had preceded them. London went wild. London went potty, wild with excitement, wild with relief, because their prince had returned and he was not married. There was no female equivalent of Philip II at the side of their future monarch. This was not to be Bloody Mary II, the return, the burnings continue. The bells rang out all over London. The bells at Lambeth were rung so hard that they had to buy new bell ropes. Clarendon described the scenes as the loudest and most universal over the whole kingdom the nation has ever been acquainted with. Clearly in those days there was no sentence with which you could not end with a preposition. In the streets, the merchant set up trestle tables spread with food for street parties. At Cambridge, the university decreed extra rations for the undergraduates. As the news spread, a cartload of felons off to Tyburn to be hanged was stopped by order of the Privy Council and all said felons released back into the wild. And bonfires, ladies and gentlemen, bonfires. That's what you need to have a good time, as well as booze, obviously, goes without saying. A bonfire is what you need to have to have a good time in Jacobean England. Cartloads of timber were waylaid and tipped into the street to start bonfires all over London. When the timber ran out, everyone made a contribution. Rubbish, fat, washtubs, bits of old furniture, bits of new furniture if the neighbours weren't watching carefully enough. 335 bonfires between Whitehall and Temple Bar, apparently. That is about a mile so that, ladies and gentlemen, is one bonfire for every five yards. I worked it out. Impressive. We do bonfires here. Always have, always will. The memory of this hoolie and its importance to the national will lived on. As one wag put it, on the 5th of October, it will be treason to be sober. In Aberdeen, the magistrates led the men of the town in an extended procession. 
the Irish planters paraded in militias. It was reported that old men wandered through the streets of Great Yarmouth with drops of joy trickling down their cheeks, acknowledging such triumphanting they never did behold. That happens a lot in Yarmouth, I have to say. Bishop William Lord, the villain of tomorrow for many, noted in his diary that he had just witnessed the greatest expression of joy by all sorts of people I ever saw. I could go on. You get the point. People were pleased. Part of it was the surprise. From all the public reports, the marriage had been proceeding decorously towards consummation. Now, its opponents, i.e. most people, were suddenly off the hook. Although, as one commentator remarked with indecent schadenfreude, recusants are silent and much dashed in countenance. Bowles and Chuckingham didn't stay long to enjoy the party in London, although Buckingham must have been loving the sudden and meteoric rise in popularity from being the villain had been drip-feeding his king poison, apparently. Now, suddenly he was the bee's elbow. The crowd is a fickle thing, just remember. But the crowd was there, hanging around York House outside where they stayed overnight, and then set out for Royston, the king and maybe a spot of hunting the following morning. In fact, there were so many in the crowd outside York House that the king's coach had to be carried through the masses. Charles leaned his body out of the coach with his hat in hand and gave thanks to them all for their love, and heard cries of, We have him! We have our prince again! in return. Well, good golly, Miss Molly, what a to-do. Before we move on, let us leave the fires dancing, drinking and smoke and reflect on the whole Spanish match thingy, and whether it is anything but a wart on the buttock of history, a carbuncle on the pig toe of destiny. Well, I would argue that it indeed does have some impacts and consequences. First of all, we have spoken a few short episodes ago about the growth of a public space. The fuss about the match confirms that political reportage was here to stay. James had tried hard to repress debate and sermonising. But still the news was out. Debate was public. Awareness of politics was high. Next, or as part of that, royal actions were no longer simply the matter for kings with all their theocratic glory, magnificence and distance, much as they would wish it were still. Now they were scrutinised, analysed, evaluated, hung in the scales of public opinion and weighed. Next, the Catholic scare and panic was now part of the atmosphere of politics. Good and proper, an ingrained belief in papal and Spanish plots, however absurd they might be in actuality, they were here to stay. Maybe even worse for Charles's future, there was polarised politics, fiercely held beliefs at opposite ends of the scale. But this time, the threat to Protestantism hadn't just come from the Spanish or the Pope. When the fires had died out and the barrels of beer rolled away, people might reflect that the threat had actually come from the very font of nationhood. The threat had come from the king. The threat had come from the court. He may be stretching it just a teeny bit, but for some... The affair gave a choice now for their loyalty they hadn't really had before, not for king and country or somewhere else, but for king 
or country. And that is a rooster that would come home to, well, you know, roost. On the more immediate front, the polarisation created a sort of dichotomy in politics. It had become either peace with Spain or war with Spain. In the public mind, there was no middle ground anymore. And as it would turn out, not just in the public mind, but in the mind of Charles and his favourite, the Book of Buckingham. Because Buckingham was now not just James's favourite, but Charles's too. Six months in Spain had forged the relationship and indeed the reliance of the prince on his mentor. Charles's love and passion for the Infanta would steadily turn to hatred and passion. Though for some time the empty promises on both sides were pursued, but he felt humiliated. His hood had been completely winked. He had been deceived by his Spanish hosts. And now he wanted vengeance. Charles had to blame someone, and clearly it wasn't going to be him. Nor could it be his Bessy Buckingham. The selected culprit was in fact John Digby, Earl of Bristol, the special envoy and supposedly Spanish expert, who had in fact turned out to be the Spanish inexpert and rather credulous, and for whose glowing reports that this thing was essentially in the bag, Charles blamed for his humiliation and his anger against him grew. When Digby tried to return to England in 1624, he was confined to barracks and sent a list of questions to answer charges that he had connived and plotted with the Spaniards. In the end, he was sent to Coventry, well, home to Sherborne, actually, but not allowed to attend parliaments. He would have still a part to play in this story, however, but we'll come to that in 1626, so let's leave him noodling around in lovely, lovely Sherborne. Now then, James was a sick man with another attack of gout. His Steeny and baby Charles weren't really helping because despite his renewed and continued desire for peace, the pair were bending James's ear to flip to the very opposite and declare war on the Spanish in the name of defending England and Europe against the arrogance and warmongering of the Habsburgs. Suffering with his gout, James retired from matters of state as part of his convalescence and put together a committee council of state to run things until he was back, fit and raring to go should that be achievable, with the help of a few hideous potions and presumably the odd leech or six. Nothing you can't do with a few strategically placed leeches, but please don't try that at home. The Committee Council is quite interesting actually because now Charles and the Buck set to work to try and build a war party among the court and privy councillors and to use that council to persuade the king to vote for the thing he hated more than everything else, a new parliament. Because war is pricey. They estimated that the minimum they'd need to make an effective start to a European war was north of 900,000 quid. And they couldn't find that from the back of the sofa. The committee council formed a useful platform to try and start off creating this new war party. And so they went to work. There was lots of smooching and rapprochements. Buckingham persuading James to release the Earl of Oxford from the Tower and that sort of thing. Lots of, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours sort of thing. The way policy and business was conducted at court. An awful lot of two-facedness going on too, I mean, obviously. So, for example, Williams, the Bishop of Lincoln, was on the council 
and Buckingham knew that he was briefing against him. But nonetheless, Buckingham gritted his teeth and acted the best bud thing. But when the war and the calling of Parliament were discussed in council, they found it very hard going. For an anti-Hapsburg party lined up one James Hay, the Earl of Carlisle. Hay was a Scot who'd come south with James and done rather well. He'd also married a woman of enormous talent, one Lucy Hay, daughter of the Earl of Northumberland, the Wizard Earl, as he was called, because of his alchemical experiments while he was incarcerated in the Tower, suspected of complicity in the gunpowder plot. We will hear more of the Countess of Carlisle over the next decade or so. Anyway, Carlisle was on his side, as was James's Secretary of State, Edward Conway. Opposed, though, were Arundel and Richard Weston. Now, Richard Weston was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and while the, the other money man as well, Lionel Cranfield, the Lord Treasurer, was also for peace with Spain, both of them knew just how wobbly were the state finances. Calvert, another Secretary of State, was a Catholic and therefore pro-Spain, and the Bishop of Lincoln, just mentioned, blew where his best advantage lay. Still, by December, Charles and Buckingham had finally achieved a first step and gained agreement to recommend a Parliament to the King. And, of course, they reckoned a Parliament would be hot, hot, hot for war with Spain, Spain, Spain. James was suitably pressurised by his son, at one point bursting into tears and explaining to Charles, Do you want to commit me to a war in my old age and make me break with Spain? To which Charles replied along the lines of, Yep, pretty much. So, James ordered the writ sent out for a new parliament. But let's be clear about this first. The committee at this stage were not persuaded of the need for war, just for parliament and more cash. Buckingham and Charles, however, knew that they were now, unusually, sailing in the same direction as public opinion. A nice feeling for them. So, they planned to use Parliament to leverage the King and Council into war. Now look, this is not normal. The idea of two courtiers and close advisers of the monarch, one his son, using Parliament as a political tool against their own King is distinctly new. For Charles, in the longer term, it would bear fruit that was not only bitter, but good only for the compost bin, like a cucumber. Outside the committee, Buckingham had more success getting converts for war at court and elsewhere. So the Earls of Essex, Southampton, Lord Say and Seal, the Earl of Warwick, Edward Cook, Edwin Sands and the Cornish MP John Elliot. But Buckingham still faced a deal of opposition and resentment in the Lords, though that opposition was less bad than it had once been and it tended to concentrate around the older members of the peerage. These members saw Villiers as a horrid parvenu. Peers don't like parvenus, only old venus, please. Parvenus say things like settee and lounge and serviette and over the last ten years or so, they'd seen the currency of their peerage devalued. So, ready for some stats? Here they come. In 1615, there had been but 81 peers. By 1628, there would be 126 of the blighters all over the place like flies. Couldn't go into the garden without treading on a peer, it seems. The growth of earldoms within that 
was even more dramatic. A poultry 27 in 1615, hardly enough to keep a fly alive, 65 of them in 1628. Good golly, to a penny. This had a dual effect, actually. Most of the new peers, though, had bought their peerages through the offices of the Villiers clan. So they were in favour, but the old peerage, the old peerage hated all these new families. However, having said all that, hatred of Spain was pretty much universal. And so it was that which really helped Buckingham build his party of patriots. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In February 1624, Parliament opened. James's speech made Charles out to be the hero of the Spanish negotiations and openly asked for advice about what should be done in the Palatinate and Spain. Well, by gum, the king, who had so often told commoners to keep their noses well out of great matters and mysteries of state. Here he was, asking for advice from them. The Parliament of 1624 therefore rather broke the mould. It actually for once represented a coming together, a relative consensus. The Spanish match had caused great polarisation, but its abandonment restored harmony for the majority. And while it was clear that James still favoured peace, and his difference on that point with Buckingham and Charles was therefore a bit confusing, Parliament was willing to unite behind Buckingham and Charles since James appeared prepared to stand to one side and let that happen. And so, business in the Parliament proceeded. 73 statutes were enacted, a lot of them piddly little private members' acts, but still, net wow. Good job, guys. Charles, on the 28th of February, introduced a motion for war in front of both houses on my future birthday, as it happens, urging that they must... Begin with Spain before they begin with us. There was general applause. Charles glowed. The Earl of Kelly reported that the men that did disturb the last Parliament were now all much for my Lord of Buckingham, as they were then against him. John Eliot, an eloquent and powerful speaker in the Commons, declared that war must be the thing that must repair us. John Pym, the MP who had caused such a ruckus at the 1621 Parliament that had been imprisoned by James, saw that with things going in the right direction, raising the constitutional issues wouldn't be a good idea at this point, and he spoke in favour of subsidies for war. We have made one step from the greatest danger that ever threatened us. God grant we not relapse again. Parliament presented a petition to the king at Tybalt's, stating their willingness for war. James responded that, while he hated war, it was all a bit academic because he didn't have two beans to rub together. And so he asked for a whopping grape subsidy worth £780,000. Now, while Parliament dithered about this and muttered into their goatee about recession and could the nation afford such a lot of money, the England outside Parliament was taking an interest in all this and the mongers of peace were hard to find, as hard as finding the lands of the Jumblies. Far and few, far 
and few. Pamphlets appeared. An Exeter merchant wrote a skit called Voices from Heaven, where Elizabeth looked down, lamenting that in her day Spain felt the English were soldiers, while Edward VI's wraith wished that English were more martial and less effeminate. The Puritan Thomas Scott published a second edition of his piece, Vox Populi, where he imagined Gondomar evilly celebrating how rubbish the English were. The Scot, Alexander Leighton, published a tract from Amsterdam hammering Gondomar, and the roaring boys of London sang daily praise of Buckingham, so recently the villain, now suddenly the hero. Then merry be my lads, and let us drink his health. We'll wish him honour and renowned, and what he wants of wealth. You might ask what a roaring boy might be, and it seems they appeared regularly in the plays of the time, as indeed did a roaring girl, the figure of Mole Cutpurse, about whom we'll hear when in a few weeks I subject you to three, yes three, episodes on the Renaissance Theatre. You won't be surprised to learn that Roaring Boys were famed for drinking, swearing, smoking and violence. In Ben Jonson's The Alchemist, they were the young offspring of gentlemen up from the country. In others, they were more working class. But either way, they affected the style of urban gentlemen. Talking of plays, later in the year, in August, Thomas Middleton's play A Game of Chess performed at The Globe. It was performed in front of James also at Beaver Castle in Leicestershire and he compared it to Vox Populi, calling it six times worse against the Spaniards. In London, the play drew 30,000 people over its nine-day run. Now that is about 10% of the entire population of London. Imagine that now, 900,000 people flocking to see, I don't know, Widow Cranky in the Temple of Doom or whatever, or... Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which my boss once forced my sales team to go to and see a next sales conference, much against my protestations, and through which they proceeded to sleep soundly until they could get back to the bar of the hotel and the real business of sales conferences. Nor was all this passion for war religiously driven. Memories were long, it wasn't that many years since the end of the war against Spain, John Chamberlain wrote that those flocking to the globe were all sorts of people, young and old, rich and poor, masters and servants, papists and puritans, wise men, churchmen and statesmen, and a world beside. The Spanish ambassador, now a chap called Coloma, wrote to Olivares that they came out the other end of the play so inflamed against Spain that as a few Catholics have told me who went secretly to see the play, my person would not be safe in the streets. He complained bitterly at being forced to see the sacred name of my king outraged in so many ways by such low, vile people, nor his holy and glorious acts so unworthily interpreted. There was a certain amount of toing that went on between Parliament and James, and some froing as well. Clearly, the king's demand for 780,000 nicker was something eye-watering. And anyway, they noticed it included the king's debts as well, so that wasn't strictly related to going to war then. So, James agreed to drop that bit of it, and agreed to ring-fence the cash to be voted purely for military purposes. As a result, 
he received half a loaf or 40% of a loaf, you might say. Subsidies, that would amount to 300,000 quid. It was no but a start, he said slightly ungraciously, but without doubt with some accuracy. A major continental war would cost a good deal more than 300,000 quid, but a deal at least of some kind had been done. The Spanish recognised that they were losing control of the situation all of a sudden. The extended negotiations over the Spanish match had delightfully helped them string James along and support him in his search for peace with Spain. But Buckingham and Charles's dramatic volt fast had blown everything sky high. They clearly identified the weak spot had to be Buckingham. Obviously, they couldn't attack Charles. So they approached James and they made a series of accusations against the Buckster. It was he that had killed the marriage negotiations, they said. Now he was planning to lock James away and put Charles on the throne, they swore. And for a while, James appeared to wobble. He reflected that maybe Buckingham's influence over his lad was excessive and had turned his head away from Spain. He was as well affected to that nation as heart could desire and as well disposed as any son in Europe. But now he was strangely carried away with rash and youthful counsels and followed the humour of Buckingham, who had he knew not how many devils within him since that journey. But in the end, Buckingham's influence was just too strong. In March, two wild celebrations in London accompanied by, of course, bonfires, James announced that he would break the marriage treaties with Spain. There remained one powerful impediment to the plan for war, and that impediment had a name, Lionel Cranfield, Lord Treasurer and Earl of Middlesex. Cranfield remained implacably opposed to the idea of war. But there was more than one reason why Buckingham was planning to redeploy Cranfield's guts for the use as his garters. Cranfield had started playing court politics hardball, traipsing his attractive brother-in-law Arthur Brett in front of James's eyes in the hope he might transfer his affections away from his old favourite. Plus, it had to be said that while Cranfield had managed heroically to reduce the king's expenditure and debt, he'd also managed to square that circle and save money for the king while ending up with an impressively feathered nest of his own. His income in 1624 was greater even than Buckingham's. That, my friends, is enough to make any nest look more than ready for an egg or two. Still, Cranfield was at least an extremely effective operator and now he'd turned his attention to Ireland and the cost of supporting administration there, and through a government commission, discovered just how much money the Villiers clan was siphoning off. A root and branch reform paper had been written. Buckingham had sunk said root and branch reform paper in the Thames and prevented it coming to see the light of day. So this is an important side note. The reports that James had had commissioned on Ireland revealed a range of issues associated with the policy and plantations there. One outcome of Buckingham's insinuation of the Villiers clan into the fabric of Irish landholding was this, the need to suppress a report advocating reform. Now, it's doubtful that the reform would have repaired many fences, but a chance to improve English governance in Ireland was lost. And sunk or not, for sure Cranfield would not give up, 
and he would try to hurt the Villiers where it hurt most, in the wallet. Cranfield's wealth had made him enemies, as had his lowly birth. He received the worst press of all from his fellow peers when they accused him as, wait for it, close your ears if you don't like a bit of bad language, ungentlemanly horrors. Worse, Cranfield had blotted his copybook with the Prince of Wales, presuming to give him advice. Advice to subordinate his own interests to the national interest. Now look, Charles was not fond of being in receipt of advice from the son of an apprentice boy, and he haughtily informed the Lord Treasurer, Earl of Middlesex, to leave matters of honour to gentlemen. Burn. So, all in all, all things considered, and in weighing up the rights and wrongs and right things to do in the eyes of Confucius, Aristotle and the eyes of God, Cranfield had to go. He must be brought down. In April then, Buckingham and Charles used the newly rediscovered tool which had worked so delightfully against Bacon of impeachment. Accusation by the Commons, trial by the Lords. Cranfield was accused of corruption. Most of the charges actually were pretty specious. Most of what he'd done to feather the nest were all above board and approved by James, but they were voted through. And Cranfield was subjected to five days of trial in front of the Lords, with Charles at one point refusing to allow Cranfield a break after five hours of questioning. James no doubt realised that Cranfield was an effective minister, probably, in fact almost certainly, the best he'd had since Salisbury. But just as he had sacrificed Bacon to save Buckingham, now Cranfield would suffer the same fate for the same reason. Now James warned his son against pressing this. He warned Buckingham against the tactics he was using, telling him, You're a fool. You're making a rod with which you will be scourged yourself. And to James he said, You will have your belly full of impeachments. Now, listen up, kids. Here is proof positive that you should always listen to your wise old father. There was never a truer word said. James had a head on him. But Cranfield was duly convicted, imprisoned at the king's pleasure and fined 50,000 quid. Three days later, James shamefacedly released him when Buckingham was away for a few days. He would never re-enter politics and died in 1645 in straitened, though not exactly desperate, financial circumstances. Well, this had been a successful parliament. Money voted, tight-fisted financial wizards expelled, a sense of unity of purpose in the air. But there had to be a worm in the apple, didn't they? A stone in the shoe. And it was again religion that provided it. A petition was raised on St George's Day to expel all Jesuits and seminary priests for the strict execution of anti-irrecusant laws and all that sort of thing, as per normal. James was fine with this and accepted the petition. But then darn me if they didn't go one step too far. That's the trouble with parliaments. Give them an inch and they'll take a mile. They went and appointed a committee, led by the Puritan MP John Pym, to investigate reports of Arminianism, allowing images in Norwich Cathedral, for example. James knew Pym of old, as I have mentioned, and he was having none of this. So he prorogued Parliament, and as he did so, reminded the MPs that the oath of supremacy forbade them to meddle in church matters. 
events were to intervene to make a recall of Parliament a bit tricky for the King. There would be obstacles to such a recall. The 1624 Parliament was significant in a couple of ways. Against the division of the Spanish match, it re-established a unity of purpose and rather highlighted the increasing engagement of the Gen pub with Parliament and its political going-ons. It marked the death of James's policy of peace at last, and it marked the arrival of Buckingham and Charles as the prime political movers. More than that, it marked a departure in English politics that was quite radical, the use of Parliament by members of the government to subvert and change royal policy. It was a dangerous precedent. Now, before we finish for the day, I have a word of the week for you, or an occasional word, as it should be. I'm going to talk of desserts and of puddings. When I were a lad, we used the word pudding for afters, desserts, sweet, whatever. I'm ashamed to say that we thought it a bit fussy to say dessert. Such are the minor prejudices of life. Pudding, as a word, has a rather complicated etymology, according to the OED. In short, basically it derives from an intestine-stuffed sausage-type structure, from a, either a Norman French root boudin or Old English puddock, the word for a swelling. None of this is pleasant, is it? Apparently the word then went back from English into a load of European languages, such as, at random, the Portuguese pudding. Anyway, enough of the stuffed intestine, blood and guts, swelling stuff. Ew. Also, I once read Madame Bovary, incidentally, when recuperating with my mate Timmy, who speaks French proper, and there they actually served up Trafalgar pudding at a bit of a do. Now that's impressive, isn't it? There is no way I'd eat Bannockburn tarts, for example. Anyway, there I was reading one of my very favourite history books, Life in the English Country House, by Marc Girouard, in preparation for a shedcast. The teeth of the book are long, but I recommend it right heartily. My heart is. It's great. Anyway, Mark was describing the arrival of the banquet in the grand Elizabethan and Jacobean houses. Banquet actually was not always, or solely at least, a word for a grand feast, I should warn. The banquet was apparently a tradition that goes back to a break in the medieval day called the void. In medieval houses, dinners would often have been taking en masse in the great chamber or the great hall, around 11am maybe, something like that. When this great thing was over, there was a problem for the household. The great chamber needed to be cleared before the afternoon's activity could be prepared in the same room for the household, cards and games, that sort of thing. This period was described as the void, which seemed a little melodramatic, but hey, a period where there was nothing to do. So, they would then make increasing use of a withdrawing room while all the clearing was done, for the close household and family where sweet wine and spices would be served. So again, banquet as not the modern meaning of a great feast, until the clearing away was done then and the void could be filled with fun. By Elizabethan times, specific rooms, banqueting houses, had been designed for these meals of sweet wine and accompanying yummies, often turret rooms on the roof. There are loads of them at Longleat House, for example. Now, in the late 17th century, 
when everything French was all the rage, the word was replaced by a French word. Because French sounds so much more sophisticated. The word meant the same as void. Désert. Ta-da! Neat, eh? That is the word desert for the sweet, yummy course and where it comes from. Maybe this is why dessert now seems a bit posh compared to pudding, Frenchified and cultured and all that sort of thing. I have to say that when I posted this on the Facebook site, the discussion was not, hey, what an interesting history fact. There was a long, involved discussion by the Brits about the class associations of the various pudding dessert afters words. The Nancy Mitford you and non you thing came up and the non-Brits stood and watched all this in open-mouthed astonishment at how complicated the class structure in England still is. Okie dokie, we are definitively done now. Next week, there is a void, or indeed a désert. And then, in two weeks' time, we have an ending. Until then, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Although iTunes is no longer the repository of all music that it once was, it and the Apple Podcast app are very much the centre of the biggest window for podcasts. So I will be very grateful, wherever you are, if, assuming you like my humble podcast, you could post a glowing review there. Meanwhile, thanks for your comments and things. Good luck until the next St George's Day and thanks for all the fish. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.